And the first thing I would suggest that people do is find people in your local community that feel the same way that you do and essentially create a support group of people who do want to make change in your community. We all need to do everything at the end of the day. And so once you have you know, figured out your local support group and other people who are doing things, then you can ask yourself, well, what do I love to do? And how can I contribute? And it may be in your local community. I think it's really important to start in your local community because you can have such a big influence in your local community. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Every week, I invite you to care more so that together we can learn, grow, and create a better world together. As part of this effort with this podcast, I introduced the idea a few weeks ago of championing the hashtag started by Greta Thunberg, Fridays for Future. I plan to start attending events in Palo Alto, California, a spot not too far from where I live, to connect with other like-minded activists. So I might learn along with them and even begin being that advocate here in my own backyard in Santa Cruz County. Sadly, I've yet to be able to make those in-person events happen. Life has gotten in the way. My kids have been sick. I injured myself in Taekwondo class. You might relate to this as we all face similar challenges in our days today. Things just get in the way. So today I bring you the next best thing, this podcast, which I faithfully bring forward each and every week for almost two years now. With this podcast, we have connected you with incredible thought leaders that similarly don't give up. They stay the course with their passionate pursuits each week. They keep showing up to get their messages into the world. They fight for what they believe in. They push for positive change. So even when I stumble, when I don't make it to an in-person event or connect with the people that I want to in my everyday life, I show up. And today we're going to meet that very person that inspired me to join him on Fridays and really begin championing Fridays for Future, that hashtag campaign. His name is Matt Schlegel. He runs those Fridays for Future meetings each and every Friday in Palo Alto, and he attends city council meetings each Monday, too. He is nothing if not vigilant. But beyond that, Matt is also a problem solver. He uses his skills to assist in the development of highly effective, style-diverse teams and gives them some tools and strategies to tackle challenges that might seem impossible. His company is called Evolutionary Teams. So today, we're going to connect with Matt about how he has adapted the powerful system called the Enneagram to everything from teamwork to activism. Matt, welcome to the show. It is so great to be here with you, Karina, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, you are showing up in ways that I presently am having trouble showing up. Life is complicated. I, you know, having a four-year-old and a seven-year-old at home is, it's different in this COVID age. Absolutely. And we all get wrapped up in our lives and 
and as did I when I had young kids as well. And it, you get to a point where you have a little bit more time and you realize how important it is to address the climate crisis. And so that's where I am. I really am digging in. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk to you a bit about that before we perhaps dig into your understanding of the Enneagram work. In our initial conversation, you made me feel like I was seen in a way that was almost uncomfortable, but that's okay. You know, we can be uncomfortable. And sometimes pushing that envelope is exactly what we need to identify where we might be going a little wrong. I'd like you first to talk about your journey to becoming a climate activist. Yeah, I became aware of the climate crisis when I was in college in the 80s. I studied science and math, and I was aware of our extraordinary emissions and burning of fossil fuels back then and how we were already on a trajectory that was unsustainable. So, you know, I became aware of it. I became concerned. I started researching more, but then life gets in the way and you end up you know, marrying somebody, you know, getting a job, having kids and going through that whole process. And as I'm watching, you know, how things are unfolding with the climate crisis, I realize much like there was misinformation when we were dealing with the tobacco crisis and the tobacco health crisis, it wasn't getting solved. And I became more and more concerned as time passed. And always in the back of my mind thinking, you know, I need to get involved more and I need to dedicate myself to, you know, helping do what I can to solve the crisis. Well, you're speaking to my heart. I mean, I actually was a smoker for a long, long time. I recently wrote a piece for ageist.com in which I talked about my journey to quit smoking in a very transparent way. It was uncomfortable to write about. You don't like to admit the impact that you've had, perhaps in a negative way, not only on your own health, but on the environment. Just think about all of those disposed of cigarette butts that in many cases, especially in my late teens and early 20s, I just squished under my foot and let go into the storm drain. A turtle might have eaten it. It could be sitting in our oceans for however long. And I really think that it's being honest about our impact that will <laughs> Really, it's like acknowledging the problem, acknowledging your part, and then ultimately seeking to be a part of the change you really want to see, because it has to start with you in a way too. What is your take on that? Well, yeah, and I think there's a lot of really great lessons to learn from the tobacco health crisis. And I've thought a lot about this because we got to a point societally that we decided we don't want to have as many smokers. And when I was growing up, I smelled smoke all the time. In my Many of my family members smoked. And so it was just kind of around you all the time. And then slowly but surely, all of my family members, they stopped smoking. And then you get to a point where, you know, it's unusual to smell smoke. And like, what a difference and what a transformative change we made in society by coming to that realization that this isn't good for us and we should do something about it. And, you know, not only at a personal level, but at a societal level. But it took everything. It took individuals and the effort that they had to go through like you did. Plus, it took a societal level change, too, with laws and policies that help transform our public spaces. And so what can we learn from that? You know, one of the things that occurs to me is there's an immediacy 
to giving up smoking and enduring the hardship and pain of giving up a nicotine addiction. Like when I was in high school, I used to chew tobacco. So I know how it feels and I know how addictive it is. And I remember, you know, deciding to give it up, but I would still get cravings for like years afterwards. It's the associative addictions. Like, you know, you're playing pool with a friend and you're like, where's my cigarette? And many people in the baseball world, it was like playing baseball went with it. You know, it was just, you had these two things together always. And so those things are really hard patterns to break. Yes. And the thing about tobacco, though, is when you give it up as hard as it is, there's a lot of positive benefits that you accrue almost immediately, right? You can, like you wake up in the morning and you feel better. If you like to go for a jog, you're finding you can run further, faster. It just slowly but surely you get all of this positive beneficial feedback from giving up that addiction. Well, we can look at fossil fuels as an addiction to a high energy fossil fueled lifestyle. That is exhilarating. You know, the fact that we can jump in an airplane and hurdle ourselves through the sky in this cylinder of metal at hundreds of miles an hour. (laughs) Wow. Right. It's mind boggling how much energy is in that substance that we have, you know, managed to you know, transform into these wonderful, exhilarating lifestyles. And there's an addiction to that, right? There's an addiction to that exhilaration that I think we are still struggling to overcome. And at a individual level, you know, if I decide to give up fossil fuels, which I am really working my best to do, I've eliminated fossil fuels for, from my home, from as much as I can, my transportation. So I really am trying to live a fossil fuel free lifestyle. And I realize that it, you know, there's a lot of inconvenience to doing this and there's not a lot of direct benefit to me, like there is giving up tobacco. And while there's a lot of benefits that will accrue to society, even that is not immediate, right? Like my stopping of burning fossil fuels today is going to benefit future generations, people who may not even be born yet. And so you have to put yourself into a different mindset of, you know, do I want to give up this now so that I can benefit all the species on the planet? Well, I do. I've decided that that is what I want to do. And I want to see if I can get enough other people to share that vision and to care about preserving the planet for future generations of people and species and just to carry on life. Yeah. I think critics of that lifestyle choice would just say, your personal impact is akin to a rounding error. And it's even been mathematically looked at as something like if you were to do everything right and essentially live almost off the grid, your contribution to reducing that impact is something akin to 0.000000003%. So nine zeros and a 3%. Right. 
I mean, can feel very discouraging because ultimately when you learn the statistics end of it, it's like, okay, well, what impact is that going to have truly on the future? And then you realize we need to push for more systemic change because in order to amplify this, doing it one person by one person by one person is just far too slow. Right. So I'm curious about how you are utilizing the skills that you've gained over your years leading teams things like Enneagram to help to motivate a broader set of our communities and even governments to change. Well, you know, systemic change, and I I just want to get back to that point, is we all have to realize, you know, I often see when people are talking about climate change, that our leaders aren't doing enough. And they're talking about politicians. Right. And why people call politicians leaders is, you know, I appreciate the distinction you're making. I really do. I struggle with that because politicians aren't leaders. They are followers. They follow us. They essentially get elected by saying they're going to do something that we want done. And usually politicians will only start to do stuff. Even if we elect them, we still still have to push them. They're not going to do it on their own. You know, it's much easier to stick with the status quo than to make transformative change. So not only do we have to elect people who say they're going to do it, we also have to push and push and push them to actually do it when they're in office because they need to know that, you know, they have or we have their back. And that they're going to, you know, fight that fight against the status quo. They have to know we still care and our needs haven't changed and that it's as important or more important than other issues that they might push forward because they also have limited resources of time, energy, and people and everything else, right? Why are they going to do that? So they're going to do it if we push them. And the other thing that occurs to me is, you know, if they look out and say, well, we need to solve this problem. We really need to stop burning fossil fuels. So who's up with that? Who's given up burning fossil fuels? <laughs> you know, who's going to raise their hand? Nobody. So few people will raise their hand. And, you know, when we see, you know, things like energy prices going up, fossil fuel prices going up, right? What's the reaction from the public? It's like, no, this is the worst thing. We need to have fossil fuel prices lower (laughs) so that we can continue to burn. Which is what essentially puts fracking out there. That's the solution to that problem. That was our last solution. Right. And so we really need to build coalitions of people who do think generationally and who do just value the beauty of having this planet full of life and bring other people into that vision. Now I'm going to get back to your question about the Enneagram. So the Enneagram is an amazing system, and most people know it as a personality system. But it actually is more than that. And I discovered that by asking the question, why the Enneagram types numbers? Why aren't they letters or colors or animals or stars? Or, you know, why are they numbers? Well, it turns out that the Enneagram is more than a personality system. It actually, those 
types are in the order in which each of the dynamics associated with that personality type appear in problem solving. So really, the Enneagram is a human problem solving system. Now, for those people who are already familiar with the Enneagram type types, they'll know that, you know, Enneagram type one is sometimes called the perfectionist. And one of the operating words with the perfectionist is, hey, it shouldn't be like that. It should be like this. So should is an operating word there. And what is the first step in problem solving? It's, hey, there's a problem there. It shouldn't be like that. It should be like this, right? It's identifying that there's something not right with the world the way that you intuit it. Okay. Right? So that's that first step. And there's a really key point in here. And it's that should. It should and shouldn't. And because they're two sides of the same coin. One is, hey, it shouldn't be like that. You know, we shouldn't be burning down the planet, right? We should stop burning fossil fuels. So, and that should part of, you know, what we should do is essentially creating a shared vision of the future. You know, a vision of how the world will look once the problem is solved. And once you have that encapsulated and you share both Hey, do you think there's a problem here? And people will nod, yes. And then how do you see us stopping that problem? What will the world look like? And then share that vision with them. And then if they care about creating that vision, then you move into step two, which is emotionally connecting with wanting to eliminate the problem and wanting to create that shared vision of the future. And I think this is where we are right now in solving the climate crisis is increasingly more and more people are realizing that, hey, there is a problem. We have a problem. We have floods and fires and heat waves and supply chains are breaking down and pandemics are breaking up. You know, people are starting to connect the dots there. So then the next thing is, what is the world going to look like when and if we decide to solve that problem? And I think societally, we are, are starting to formulate what that vision for the future will look like, how we're going to live our lives in a fossil fuel-free way that allows us to start bringing down atmospheric concentrations of CO2 and methane and all, all the bad things. And so that's the part that I think we're still working on in terms of getting people to care about really engaging. And that's really what fascinates me right now. So getting them to move from problem identification to emotionally connecting with it and then ultimately acting. Right. Yeah. Because once you actually connect emotionally, that's like your fuel to move into the next step, which is how am I going to engage? What ideas do I have? So step three is, I call it the ideation step. You know, it's like, what ideas do I have to stop burning fossil fuels? What can I do? And then you start to move through the different steps of problem solving. And, but you're not going to get people to engage with the problem until they really get into step two, which is connecting 
emotionally with it, both the problem and a vision for the future. So ultimately, it sounds like you're talking about how we get people to care. Yes, exactly. So why don't they care? Like, this is the bigger question I'm continually asking. Why don't people care? Why don't enough of us care? That's right. And this goes right back to how we started the conversation is that when, you know, I find and I'm doing this, I've, I've done it with myself and I'm doing it with people close to me that trust me and I'm working with them to start to realize what we need to do to change our lifestyles. And it literally is like going through a grieving process. And what is the first step in the grieving process? Denial. Usually is it denial, then anger, right? (laughs) But it's denial is first. Mm -hmm. And so our first reaction when, you know, because grieving is it's experience a loss of, you know, how you process loss and like how I process, you know, giving up tobacco or, you know, giving up my high energy fossil fueled lifestyle. You know, you're going into that, but it's painful. And so it's much easier to not even go into it. If you can and you can avoid it, you don't even want to go into it because it's too painful. And so that's what I sense is going on fundamentally is that the pain of acknowledging that, you know, our consumption of fossil fuels and our high energy lifestyles especially as, you know, people who live in America, because we use a lot of energy per capita here and realizing that we have to give that up. It's painful. It, and it's painful for me. And I literally one evening, you know, when I was really coming to grips with what I was going to be doing this year and giving up fossil fuels, I literally just broke down and started weeping. I just started weeping. Because I realize, oh, this is going to change everything. It's going to change my life. It's going to change my relationships with my friends and family. It's going to change my work relationships. It's going to change everything. And I went through that process where I just broke down and wept. But I knew at that point I was emotionally connected. I was completely and totally emotionally connected, not only with the problem, but what the vision of the future was that I needed to realize in order to make the transformational changes that we need to make. So, and you're doing this in a world where Palo Alto, not necessarily one of those 15 minute cities. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, I'm as San Francisco Bay Area child. I grew up here, you know, from 13 to present. I moved to Santa Cruz because I like the climate and the environment and the people, but I too am not in one of those cities where you can just walk to everything that you need and live on a steep hill, which is part of my workout every day. I go out and I walk my dog and get into nature, can be walking in the redwoods at one moment, but, you know, to get my kids, I have to get in the car to take them to school or to soccer practice. And there's that reality. So even though I don't really drive for work and I work to 
build my errands in kind of a circular pattern. So I'm not driving back and forth all the time. It's a definite difficulty to get away from at least 100% to like no fossil fuels. I had an electric car for a while. I gave it up when the lease expired. (laughs) You know, it's like the choices that you make along the way. And my my other vehicle, my backup vehicle was, you know, a gas powered vehicle and it's still relatively new. I'm thinking about what will come next. So I don't necessarily think that for every person out there, a draconian stopping that, that fuel drip all at once or entirely is realistic a moment's notice. And there will be many people who are doing their best, right, in the day-to-day, but aren't really going to change away from their gas-fueled car until it, you know, it either gets forced upon them in some way. Right. And we'll insist that our politicians do that, right? <laughs> and they'll say something like, well, gosh, you know, I need to have a truck because I want to be able to go off-roading and do X, Y, Z. I mean, that's going to be the last thing to fall, I think. The last chip to fall will be, you know, the big Ford F-150s, F-250, F-350. <laughs> I think they have a 450, right? Like they just get they just get bigger and bigger. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the last chip to fall will be. You know, it's really too hard to predict at this point as we go through this transformation. I I think we're in for really interesting times as we go through this, because in as much as we do want to continue, there's a human bias called normalcy bias. There's a meme that's going around right now where there's a, a dog sitting at a kitchen table with a cup of coffee and the house is burning around him and there's smoke in, on the ceiling and everything's fine. So that is kind of making fun of our normalcy bias and our unwillingness to accept that, you know, things are literally collapsing around us right now. But we are so wedded to our status quo, high energy, fossil fuel lifestyles that we're just going to say, yeah, everything's fine and we'll just keep going. But at some point that, you know, the house will burn down. So everything will change unless we get up, get the fire extinguisher and and start putting out the fire. Mm-hmm. And being proactive. I mean, that's ultimately, I think what you're talking about is like taking these proactive steps to actually have the change happen at an accelerated pace so that we're part of a solution as opposed to just accepting that, well, this is just the way it is and we're going to be a part of the problem. So what gives? Right, right. Yeah. And it's finding, you know, and now we're getting more into maybe people who are are listening to this now, you know, are thinking, yeah, you know, maybe maybe there are some things I can do. Maybe there are some steps I can take to transform my lifestyle and just start to be aware of how I'm contributing to the problem, you know, realizing that, guess what? As long as I continue to buy fossil fuels, the fossil fuel companies are going to continue to sell them to me. You know, so I have to choose not to buy it. I have to boycott the fossil fuels if we want to shut down fossil fuel companies. Well, and the part that becomes harder is that there's so many things that are petrochemical based products, including the clothing we buy and the plastics we use and the 
panels in the vehicle that you drive. I mean, that's right. Basically everything plastic. One of the things I'm less worried about, honestly, is plastic industry. Plastic actually sequesters carbon. In a not a great way. I get it. <laughs> yeah, I just, I honestly had never heard that before because I mean, I understand it because it's, we're carbon based. Like everything that we utilize in a way is carbon based. It's not in the atmosphere. So. <laughs> it's not the best. And believe me, the bigger problem is our burning of fossil fuels. That is the bigger problem. And if we could stop burning fossil fuels and then, you know, because I think that's most of the fossil fuel consumption is in the burning of it and using that energy. And there's some smaller amount that is used for plastics and roads and, and all that stuff. I imagine that we will continue to use fossil fuel for materials, hopefully in a way that is less harmful to the environment. But I did read an article once, you know, that was just sharing what a shame it is that we have this material that is this organic carbon, hydrocarbon based material that can be used for so many things other than just burning it, you know, so I'm less worried about that than just pulling it out and burning it. And I want to get back to a comment you made about Palo Alto, because when I have, you know, conversations with, you know, people in my community about this, right? It's, you know, sometimes, you know, you might ask somebody and they'll say about the climate crisis and they'll say, yeah, but, you know, what about India and China? You know, they're using so much fossil fuel now. And then, you know, you might talk to somebody in California or Palo Alto and they'll say, yeah, but what about Texas? They're using so many fossil fuels right now. Because <laughs> everybody's driving a truck, whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. You know, but to me, it's the exact same thing. To me, it's just a way of denying your own responsibility for the problem. And here's the thing, you know, when I look at, you know, Palo Alto, you know, we're pretty... In terms of the number of emissions on a per capita basis, it's people who live in the Bay Area are pretty high on the list. So I would say to somebody who lives in Palo Alto, if we don't figure out how to stop burning fossil fuels with all of the knowledge we have, we're next to Stanford, you know, with all the resources we have here and, you know, with an understanding that this is a problem and we should be doing something about it. Well, if we don't do something here in Palo Alto, like if we don't transform our city into a fossil fuel free city, how can we expect anybody else on the planet to do it? Right. Because we should be able to do it here. And this is a resource rich area. It's one of the richest areas. Yes. You know, and so if you want to show leadership, if you want to talk about leadership, you know, we can do it at a community level. You know, we can be a leader, you know, say it's Palo Alto, but, you know, the Bay Area in general, you know, if we all do it or if Palo Alto does it and it goes out to the other, you know, communities in, in our region and then we make San Francisco Bay Area fossil fuel free. Now we've we've created a model for a whole region. 
And maybe that can be replicated throughout California. And now we've done it for a whole state. And then maybe that can be replicated in other states. And maybe it could just, you know, move out like that. And so that's kind of what motivates me is in spite of how hard this challenge is, is that, you know, if anybody can do it, we can do it. If it can be done, we can do it. And we should try getting back to the should. Yeah. So let's talk about this for a moment from the perspective. Let's just assume people listening, they care. They cared enough to listen to this point in the conversation. What should they do now if they want to push for this change? They want to, you know, help that flywheel spin so that we can be in a space where we get to these fossil fuel dependent less or completely independent cities, states, regions. Right. And the first thing I would suggest that people do is find people in your local community that feel the same way that you do and essentially create a support group of people who do want to make change in your community. We all need to do everything at the end of the day. And so once you have you know, figured out your local support group and other people who are doing things, then you can ask yourself, well, what do I love to do and how can I contribute? And it may be in your local community. I think it's really important to start in your local community because you can have such a big influence in your local community. But maybe that's not your thing. Maybe your thing is advocating for state level policy or national level policy or, you know, the law or or you mentioned the fashion industry. Maybe that's your passion. What can you do in that area? Because we need to do everything. Fossil fuels have infiltrated every aspect of our life. And so you can almost take anything that you're passionate about and you can look and move to decarbonize it. And you put your energy in that. And then, you know, you have your local group and maybe they'll want to join you in that. You can develop a community of people that are working together on that. And it becomes very invigorating. It really does. And you feel like you're you know, working towards something that amazing future that is going to sustain life on the planet. And you're doing it with people who feel the same way that you do and who are, love what they're doing and will support each other through the ups and downs of this huge challenge that we're undergoing. Well, and the power of community for something like that. I mean, just two people coming together, it's almost as if a third entity is created because your idea share creates something else. And so I'm a full proponent and I agree finding your community and preferably people you can can get together with in person to push forward these initiatives because there's something to that real in-person connection that I think adds value and ultimately makes you feel more fulfilled in the doing, makes it a more worthwhile effort. Right, exactly. And this is, you know, you mentioned that I started organizing Fridays for Future in Palo Alto. And this is one of the reasons why I did it is I recognized that having a local community that is focused on this is really important. And, you know, and Fridays for Future is an organization 
It was started by Greta Thunberg, the Swedish student climate activist who took off school every Friday and went in front of Swedish parliament demanding that they do something. And so we've kind of taken that same theme. And every Friday, we go out in front of Palo Alto City Hall with our signs and we demand that this city pass their sustainability and climate action plan and roll out programs that will help us to decarbonize the community. And it's amazing the energy that's come out of that and also, you know, how much engagement that we've now got with the city. So for instance, tomorrow we're meeting with the city sustainability manager and we meet with her about once a month now just, you know, to get her take on where the city is. And then we say, well, what can we do to support you in moving the ball forward? You know, so, and again, it comes down to that, you know, political push that then we can take that, you know, information, go to city council and say, hey, why are you dragging your feet on this? Like, you know, let's move forward. And, or why aren't you considering some aspect of the community that really needs to have some extra attention and you know, push forward on that? And so we're having conversations with with the city about you know what they're doing. But then we're going to city council meetings and we're pushing the city council in the right direction. And importantly, you're a concerned citizen. You're not a lobby group. You know, it's not like you have a special interest that is funding your effort. You're the people that elected them. So let's push for that change. I just wanted to add one thing is that for whatever reason, my Enneagram type (laughs) seems to think that this activity is fine. I really enjoy it. I enjoy digging in, getting into the details, figuring out what's, you know, not working right. Then going in front of city council and saying, hey, why aren't you working on this for whatever reason? I enjoy that. It's a big rate, but not everybody's like that. And guess what? You know, I found since I've started this group, there's at least a half a dozen other climate groups in Palo Alto doing different things that are more aligned with the interests of that group. Right. And so I don't expect them to come over to Fridays for Future. But Fridays for Future totally supports them and they totally support us as we're all kind of working towards this bigger vision of the future. And then we can collaborate on certain things that we're doing and support each other. And so that's another part of that community building process that I'm finding is is just fascinating. What's really interesting is you're tying now into a conversation I had with David Johnson who happens to be a professor of design thinking and law at Stanford and who is in the midst of writing his book specifically on applying elements of design thinking to climate action. And we interviewed him on this podcast. So he talked about it from the perspective of getting essentially groups of people to collaborate across continents, across cities and similar groups and all essentially doing what you're describing. So I think that there's an element of this that can work, that can amplify our messages, and that can ultimately work to mobilize the billion climate activists that we may need to actually push forward the change that we need to see. So I think that's all incredible. Now, I know that there's a big day coming up, and I'm not sure if this episode will air before that in about two Fridays, I believe, right? September 20. 
global climate strike. So, you know, Fridays for Future is initiating a global climate strike on September 23rd of this year, 2022. There was one in the spring as well. And generally, Fridays for Future does, you know, organize about two climate strikes a year. This is the fall one that we're organizing now. And we've, you know, already reached out to Sunrise Movement, which is another youth-led climate group, uh, mostly U.S.-based. And then there is a climate group right here in Palo Alto called Palo Alto Student Climate Coalition. So it's our three organizations that are organizing this climate strike and then other of these climate groups are coming in and joining us, like the Raging Grannies and 350.org. And different groups are now you know, really interested in what we're doing and wanting to participate. So it's kind of growing momentum. Well, that's fantastic. So I will invite you back to do a quick live stream with me, whether it be on the 23rd or just before. It would be nice to do so. And if nothing else, I hope to join you there on that day. I hope to see you there too. Yeah. And bring your kids. Hoping that the kids don't change it. <laughs> yeah. Strike from school. They can go on their school strike, right? You know, it's really interesting. This has been something that I've thought about quite a bit. And when I've organized with students, you know, students really have a hard time missing school, you know, and they're under a lot of pressure to do well in school and they don't want to miss school. And I totally get that and I support that. And so we find ways for them to participate so that they don't have to miss school. So our climate strike on the 23rd is going to be from 5-7 after school hours so that they can come and join and participate. Well, that's nice to see. I know the pressure is real, <laughs> even for my second grader who's, you know, perhaps having a little bit of a struggle learning to read. So, you know. Each of us has our own challenges. He has a little bit of reversal issues. Like when he first learned to write his name, and it's a long name, he wrote it in perfect mirror. So if you held it up to a glass mirror, you could see it correctly. And so it's just taken him, I think, a little longer. Like even when I'm reading with him, he'll start reading from the center of the word or the finish of the word often, and then have to go, oh no, I'm supposed to start here. So that part is maybe a learning disability, not dramatic. But, you know, just means it's a little tougher for him. Each of our brains is wired a little bit differently, right? Exactly. Exactly. You know, that's the nice thing. And I think you talked about it a little bit in the intro is there's so much value, for lack of a better word. I don't mean to, to step on this word if there's a specific use for it, but neurodiversity. You know, just including the different perspectives that different people bring. And the Enneagram, you know, it talks about these nine distinct styles. Well, that is an aspect of neurodiversity right there, is each one of us is bringing these distinct perspectives and motivations to the team. And the more styles that are represented on your team, the better you will be at problem solving. And then that also goes, you know, just for perspectives on life, you know, what experiences you've had and what can you, you know, bring to the team with the perspectives that those experiences give you, given you. And then even people, you know, with disabilities, you know, we call them disabilities sometimes like ADHD or being on the spectrum, but there is really 
a lot of value in having everybody at the table. Difference. That's right. You know, so for instance, Greta Thunberg herself, right? She's on the spectrum and she talks about this and it really gives her a focus. One, And two, it gives her a little bit of emotional distance from the problem. And why I'm really starting to recognize the value in having people who can separate themselves emotionally, because this is such an emotionally fraught challenge, having that distance actually allows you to stay engaged more persistently than somebody who starts to feel overwhelmed when they, you know, deal with it. So again, we need everybody. (laughs) We really need everybody. Wow. Well, you've given me a lot to think about, and I'm sure we could continue on this train of thought for some time. But as it is, we've come close to the end of our hour. And I would love to ask you, as we prepare to wrap, if there's a question that I haven't asked that perhaps you wish I had, And if you have, you could ask and answer it. And if not, you could just leave us with your closing thoughts. What would you have people walk away from today's session thinking about? Well, yeah, thanks for asking that. And, and, you know, and the one piece of advice I give people that, you know, we can all do, we can all do, and I encourage everybody to do, just bring up the climate crisis in conversation. Just bring it up. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't bring it up, nobody will. It's the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. <laughs> yeah. And it's literally a form of denial is just, you know, <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to have to find that meme and include it in this <laughs> blog post. <laughs> exactly. You know, so just, you know, just bring it up, you know, and make it as personal as possible. You know, it's like, it was smoky the other day and we all know it's from the wildfires and we know the wildfires are exacerbated by climate change. So just bring that up. And we need to kind of normalize the conversation about climate and not let it be, you know, the elephant in the room that we're not talking about, which you, you know, so eloquently pointed out there. So that would be my one piece of advice, Karina. And thanks so much for having me and, and for hearing me out on this. No, thank you for joining me. To connect with Matt Schlegel and his important work, you can visit evolutionaryteams.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe and write essay review so more people will discover the show. And I encourage you to visit our podcast page, caremorebebetter.com. I am going to find that meme of that dog that's burning down with the house. (laughs) (laughs) to share with you in case you have not seen it yet. There you'll find links to everything that we discussed, connections to past episodes that I think would be important for you to listen to, including that interview with David Johnson, also an interview with Paul Hawken on his work with Regeneration and Regeneration.org. That book is almost a textbook on helping you become more informed in the specific area around climate change that you might work to champion. Now, along with our blog, of course, I include complete transcripts. This means that anybody that wants to read it can. If you're hearing impaired, if you have friends that are hearing impaired, they can get access to the same information just by reading. 
You can also sign up for our email newsletter on the page, and I encourage you to do so. When you do, you get a welcome gift right away. It's simply a guide, includes five steps to help unleash your inner activist. There are resources included in this guide that connect to specific charities that we encourage you to champion in the climate space as well. And it can just operate as a start, something for you to help educate yourself. And it's completely free. I only send one email a week, so your inbox will not be bombarded. And I do not share your email addresses with anybody either. That's my personal commitment to you. If you have feedback or questions for me or for Matt, you can always leave me a voicemail on caremorebebetter.com or send me an email note directly to hello at caremorebebetter.com. I encourage you to connect with me in social spaces. I'm on all the platforms. And I just want to thank you, all of you, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community. Because together, we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even reverse global warming and regenerate this planet, our lovely Earth. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. And let's go out there, Fridays for the Future, and be active. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.